We are really going to miss him as our president, but he has been a fantastic ally of the society over the eight years that he served in this role. I know that personally, I'm really going to miss the fact that one phone call away, there was always someone to give wise and sage advice, particularly about how the society should direct itself and how we could uh, do the most good and have the most impact. Um, so as I invite David to speak to you at the podium, I'd like us all in the society and all of those with us today to thank him for the time that he's given to us. Thank you very much, David. Well, thank you very much indeed, Helen, for that extremely generous introduction. Um, uh, as usual, I'm the only person between you and the drinks, so I'm going to, I'm going to stick to, to time tonight. I want to talk tonight about a work in progress. And uh, apologies to those of you who've heard about bits of this during the course of the last year while I've been at work on it. To cut to the chase, it's about the role of higher education in creating conditions for the exercise of personal responsibility. And in that sense, I hope it links well with your conference theme. I'm only going to mention the coalition government once, and I'm only going to mention the Council for the Defence of British Universities once. And if you blink, you'll miss it. So apologies if you'll be disappointed by that. Um, my project is about what higher education institutions, chiefly universities, say they have been doing for and to their most important members their award-seeking students, and why it matters. I'm intrigued by how varied these claims have been over the long history of the higher education enterprise, but also by how strong and how determined they invariably are. Essentially, my argument is that these claims represent a moving combination of recurrent themes, nearly all present in one way or another at the creation of the modern university, and liable individually to wax or to wane according to mainly, but not exclusively, external influences. My analysis covers at least 10 separable senses, sets of purposes for higher education. And I'll set them out over this in the next slide. The first is religious, and it acknowledges the role of higher education in confirming faith, and from time to time inspiring it as through conversion. Doctrinal and even dogmatic instruction has been central here. The second is about personal development, with a string of evocative descriptors, self-realization, self-discovery, self-creation, and so on. This links with a discourse about establishing the authenticity of the individual actor, and pedagogically, the key here is independent learning. The third is more social, looking at ways in which the individual improves his or her relationship with a wider world, culturally, economically, politically, and so on. This can end up in a form of education for citizenship, including world citizenship, and it can also incorporate much more local pedagogies, such as service learning. The fourth is about technical know-how where higher education, often in combination with other forms of recognition, essentially attests the ability of the graduate to be able to perform certain functions at specified levels. The fifth links with this, but incorporates the wider question of professional acculturation, 
membership of a profession thus aligns with membership of the university. The sixth emphasizes the relationship of the student to his or her peers, whether or not this is structured through an intended profession. Much of the longer-term effect of higher education is claimed to be through networks established or discovered at university and relied upon for the remainder of careers or even the rest of life. The seventh focuses on accelerated maturation or time and space to grow up. It is seen as connected with moving away from home, although for many part-time and an increasing number of full-time, especially older students, this doesn't formally apply. An eighth draws upon the notion of protected time, stressing that higher education is potentially an interval on the career-driven part of the life course. Again, it will not apply in the same way to students on some professional courses or to many part-timers who are earning and learning and for whom credentials are critical. The ninth is about subjects and disciplines independent of their professional or their applied settings. Many students are drawn to higher education by an inspiring teacher at secondary level or by love of the subject. Once in and beyond their institutional experience, they then get impaneled in campaigns to promote or protect their subject. And the final strand is probably best summed up as mental gymnastics. There are claims that higher education is more demanding than that which precedes it and in many cases follows it. And this, like all of the elements on this list, is at least contested. Most of the claims about the purposes and achievements of higher education are irreducibly individualistic. It will change your life through conversion or confirmation of faith, by improving your character, by giving you marketable abilities, by making you a better member of the community or simply more capable of operating effectively in the contemporary world. All of those qualities scale up, but in differing ways. And here, just as a taster, are some contemporary voices from inside and outside the establishment reflecting on some of these. For example, here, Rob Behrens the chief executive of the OIA. And what we've got here is personal development, social engagement, networks, and love of the subject. For something rather different, this is the comedian David Mitchell on maturation and protected time, giving kids who would benefit from further academic development a bit of space in which to find themselves. Here's a slightly more cynical voice from a journalist, Patrick Balcom of The Guardian. Cambridge bequeathed to me a key to the British establishment. By the time I graduated, all these things no longer intimidated me. I didn't feel chippy or cowed by anything or by any one job. Perhaps foolishly, I felt well-educated. And here's another journalist, Tom Utley, of the Daily Mail, changing his mind about advising his son not to go to university. 
You can't put a price on three or four years at a proper university studying a proper subject such as history. And don't believe any world-weary old fool who tells you otherwise. This is the official sort of portmanteau view. Uh, this comes from the Brown Review on, on fees and funding. And I'm going to leave this one up for a little longer, because if you look carefully here, you can find nine of my ten claims shoehorned into this one paragraph. Transforms lives, likely to be, more likely to be employed, higher wages, better job satisfaction, enabling individuals from low-income backgrounds and then their families to enter higher status jobs, Melbourne mobility, and increase their earnings, health benefits, less likely to be involved in crime, more likely to be actively engaged with their children's education, more likely to be active in the community. The only one that's missing there, I think, is religion. But you could even find a, um, a, a kind of sideways reference to that in terms of communities. Next, two voices from the United States. This is Peter Brooks talking about how universities may not be perfect, but society is not perfect. And they are in the lead in terms of commitments that should say equality, sorry, and to a greater degree of social justice. And in the United States, religion makes a comeback, as it often does in the United States. Uh, this statement from the Times Higher has, I think, got one of the best potential university strap lines I've seen for a while. <laughs> I, I'd love to see, you know, adverts for jobs, and at the bottom is the University of X, enhancing life and preparing for death. <laughs> uh, incidentally, I, th I think that uh, Edinburgh University's um, philosophy department once had a heading at the top of their curriculum in the, in the undergraduate prospectus saying, learn how to die. <laughs> Uh, sometimes the tone can be nostalgic, and this is the Council for the Defence of, of British Universities, of which I'm proud to be a member. But this is Keith Thomas talking about um, some of the things that we may have lost. Knowledge is a gift of God, devoted to higher learning, research, that means, or the tradition that some graduates, rather than rushing off to Canary Wharf, might serve society. And this is the sort of thing that Sir Keith is complaining about. Now, it's important so far that all of these statements are made by and on behalf of insiders. That is, participants and prospective participants. It's also significant that, by and large, these kinds of statements have survived the transition from so-called elite to mass higher education. As a larger proportion of, of the population has a stake in higher education, including vicariously through their children, they're more likely to view it positively. That's why, incidentally, college has retained its upbeat reference in American popular culture, even through hard times. But I thought I should finish with a contrary view. There are still uh, influential views, vo voices which view higher education with a mixture of envy and contempt. This is Auburn War, 
of course, son of Evelyn, the author of Brideshead Revisited, which is probably one of the most sensuous evocations of the elite past, uh, writing here in 1975, just before the UK followed the US in almost quadrupling the age participation rate. Incidentally, the younger war dropped out of Christchurch, Oxford, after just one year. But this is a brilliant polemic, I think. Man is born equal, but some of them pass their own levels and some don't. The element of sexual jealousy, which may always have existed through the generations. Ingratitude, idleness, lust, hypocrisy, and self-righteousness are the main characteristics of this cancer in our midst, which we call higher education. So, not everybody agrees. But these statements collectively raise a number of complex questions. Does initial or undergraduate higher education invariably change the lives of those who participate in it? If so, how? For example, in economic or moral terms, or in any other way? And if so, why? Who or what is responsible for bringing this about? Are these effects serendipitous or predictable? Designed or accidental? Desired or feared? Is higher education a necessary or even a sufficient condition for any of these so-called transformations? Are they more general aspects of maturation for some people? Could higher education indeed act to inhibit or to delay such development for others? Can all varieties of higher education make similar claims? It may be no accident that the first three of my introductory voices benefited, each of them, from the kind of higher education that Michael Oakeshott memorably, and perhaps now anachronistically, called the gift of an interval. Well, history can help here. The history of higher education is essentially geological. Strata are laid down at different times, in different ways, and for different, and for different purposes. But once there, they are irremovable. And in some parts of the university world, they remain nearer the surface than others. You can also, to pursue the um, geological metaphor, you can have pipes, what chalk geologists call pipes, which connect some locations directly with earlier layers. Tectonic plates can be formed, which move slowly, but sometimes cause major disruption. These are, I think, the essential layers. In 13th century Europe, the protected societies of Oxford and Cambridge colleges, of the um, uh, theologians in Paris, the lawyers in Bologna, and so on. Followed, incidentally, by quite a long fallow period in terms of institutional invention in higher education, with many relevant developments happening outside universities. And then the next major layer connected with 19th century European and American industrialization. That's where many of our great modern universities come from. And then in the late 19th and early 20th century, another layer, public authorities getting involved in coordinating what is going on in higher education. In the late 20th century, some efforts at tertiary joining up of different levels of post-compulsory um, education. 
And finally, in the early 20th century, a new arrival, and this is a genuinely new layer in my view, that is the arrival of the for-profit institutions. Because in none of these previous layers are the key divisions between public and private. You can have public and private varieties of each, and of course many hybrids. Privately funded higher education has played a role throughout this history. What is new to us is the for-profit part of the business, the discovery by major corporations of an opportunity in higher education to create dividends and shareholder value. Just to nail this down, here are two worked examples, and I think you can read across, even though they may not be in exactly the same eras, the analogies between Oxford and Cambridge and the seminaries that subsequently became the Ivy League as Oxford and Cambridge had become modern major um, research universities. The Victorian Edwardian civics, founded at around the same time and for similar purposes as the land-grant universities in the United States following the two Moral Acts. And then in the 20th century, the arrival of the public sector of higher education, major colleges, uh, at the same time as American states were beginning to integrate and organize their systems. And then in the latter part of the 20th century, some major institutional innovations, significantly but not exclusively around distance and um, uh, information technology assisted higher education. And then what is now called the dual sector, as the system of post-compulsory education has become much larger, some blurred boundaries, some potential stepping stones between one form and another of post-compulsory education. This pattern, I think, is pretty robust. And you can look at most major systems around the world and identify the point where they started and the layer that they actually joined. So, for example, in Japan and China, the um, uh, major public universities, the imperial universities, uh, are around the same time as um, the later um, Victorian Edwardian civics. The sandstone universities, similarly, in Australia. Many societies that have joined in more recently have jumped immediately to open and distance learning as a way of creating, for example, what John Daniel calls the mega-universities across Asia and uh, the subcontinent. So I contend that this pattern is almost universal with different societies joining in at different times and, of course, thereby um, underlining or creating claims or combinations of claims about what they're trying to do. Put together throughout that history, there is a number of claims here about the role of higher education in existential terms, how participants come to be, what actually happens to them personally. In epistemological terms, how they think and how they appraise information. In behavioural terms, how they learn to conduct themselves. And in positional terms, including through competition and collaboration. Some of these possibilities are open and provisional. Others are closed and create compliance. Some, in the words of Donald Kennedy, are about leadership, and others are about lag. 
The validity and applicability of such claims will vary over time by institutional setting, by subject and mode of study, according to the expectations of funders and other stakeholders, and critically, in terms of the approach taken by the student himself or herself. My project attempts to see where these claims come from, how much contemporary resonance any of them still have, and above all, whether they can combine to create a kind of moral compass, a form of personal responsibility. And so I've clustered or collected these claims around five sets of questions. In philosophical terms, these are part ethical. What should higher education be seeking to inspire or inculcate in terms of habits of thinking? And they're part epistemological. How does it proceed to validate certain types of knowledge? So there is the question of conscience especially as it has been developed through religious foundations and, of course, also adapted by religious foundations to deal with the post-Enlightenment world. There's the question of character, as it's claimed to have been formed through liberal higher education. There are the questions of calling, of competence and of craft in the zones of professional and vocational higher education. There's the question of citizenship, as in respective obligations to civil society, the state, and global responsibilities. And finally, there's a question of capability, the role of higher education in inculcating life skills, including employability. Finally, as a contribution to the debate, I've attempted to scope out what these might all mean collectively. What are the ten commandments given to a contemporary higher education institution? I'm not going to make any claims about by whom. Um, what might they be? The first two have, of course, to be about how we work. Strive to tell the truth. Academic freedom in the sense of following difficult ideas wherever they may lead is possibly the fundamental academic value. But it goes along with the second. Take care in establishing the truth. Adherence to scientific method is critical here, as in the use of evidence, as in the falsifiability principle, but so too are concepts like the social scientist's warrant or the search for authenticity in the humanities and the arts. There's a particular kind of academic bad faith when this one goes wrong, which moves too quickly to rhetoric and persuasion in advance of the secure establishment of the grounds for conviction. The remaining eight are about how we behave. Be fair, I think, is, again, central. This is about equality of opportunity. It's about non-discrimination perhaps even in certain circumstances, affirmative action. Along with freedom in the academic value system goes respect for persons. Do no harm. This is where the assessment of consequences cashes out and it presents our nearest equivalent to the Hippocratic Oath to strive, if you remember, not to harm but to help. It's about non-exploitation 
either of human subjects or of the environment. It underpins other notions, like the philosopher Peter Singer's progressive engagement. It can help with really wicked issues, like the use of animals in, experimental, in, in medical experiments. Keep your promises. Universities and colleges are involved in a variety of contracts and partnerships. Their record is pretty good on the whole. On large-scale projects on which millions of pounds can rest, the examples of the university partner walking away from a done deal are very rare. Meanwhile, the commercial partner can often withdraw, citing changes in strategy, the business cycle, or even changes in management. These business excuses for retreating from or unreasonably seeking to renegotiate agreements are much less acceptable in an academic context. Respect your colleagues, your students, and especially your opponents. Working in an academic community means listening as well as speaking, seeking always to understand the other point of view, ensuring that rational discourse is not derailed by prejudice, by egotism, or by bullying of any kind. We are engaged in a highly competitive business. There's probably nothing more competitive than modern science. But it's not the kind of competition that simply seeks to, dis to drive um, all alternatives out. If only one chemistry lab um, secured all the grants, the subject would begin to grind to a halt. Sustain the community. All of the values here are deeply communal. Obligations that arise are not just to the subject or the professional community, or even to the institution in which you might be working at any one time, but to a family of institutions that make up the university enterprise nationally and internationally. Penultimately, guard your treasure. University and college communities and those responsible for leading and managing them are in the traditional sense stewards of real and virtual assets and of the capacity to continue to operate effectively and um, reasonably. And finally, never be satisfied. Perhaps this is the academic equivalent of the golden rule. Academic communities understood the principles of continuous improvement long before they were adopted by the management literature. We also understand it's merciless and its asymptotic layer, uh, nature. The closer we get to that line of uh, final understanding and uh, the gap narrows, it will continue to narrow and we will never quite um, get there. Um, these commandments, in particular, represent a council of perfection. They are the university's best self in action. But I suggest they also provide an argument to the question of what lies at the heart of transformation claims about the university's effects on its student members. But the final question is a hard one. Is higher education likely to make you better, to improve your capacity to make sound moral or, as well as technical judgments? And there are two key existential questions going on here. 
Does higher education actually assist with the process of self-creation? And does it enable its participants better to connect? Um, another C in that list, in the spirit of E.M. Forster's Howard's End. Does higher education, in Martha Nussbaum's ringing phrase, cultivate humanity? The simple answer has to be that it can, that it doesn't necessarily do so, and that there have to be other honourable ways of achieving the same end. It is, however, as I've tried to show in this short talk, generally good at this important job. Uh, in O-level mathematics, they always used to say at the top of the paper, show your working. Well, here's where you can see some of that, and this will appear in, in book form from the Institute of Education Press uh, fairly soon, although I still have some way to go. Thank you very much for listening, and so to drinks.